Margin Call is the podcast that gives you behind-the-scenes access to the ups and downs of working in the Forex CFD industry. We interview the people that keep the show on the road, giving you insight into what makes the industry tick. The series is guest-hosted by myself, Jordan Michaelides, and produced by the team at Neural Media. To learn more, visit gomarkets.com slash podcast. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S dot com slash podcast. Or take a look at the Go Market suite of products at gomarkets.com. Go Markets is a derivatives broker and Jordan Michaelides is the managing director of Neural Media. All opinions expressed by Jordan and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Go Markets, an AFSL license holder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial decisions nor as an indication of future performance. Clients of Go Markets may hold positions in the derivatives mentioned. A financial services guide and product disclosure statement for our products are available at gomarkets.com.au. In this episode, we spoke with Alex Saunders. Alex, who is affectionately known as Nuggets, is one of Australia's foremost market commentators and educators in the digital asset space. The founder of popular media and education brand Nuggets News, Alex's passion for crypto was born from a frustration of traditional financial markets that many first adopters feel in this space. His education has allowed many traders to steer clear of scams in the industry, focusing instead on developing a framework and community that centers on high-value projects. In this episode, we covered a lot, including what he loves about Tasmania, pharmacy over dentistry, how he got into crypto, banking and financial services, the current state of crypto and potential future, and of course, his approach slash value investing as well. If you like the episode, leave us a rating on your podcast app or share with your friends by taking a screenshot and posting on your Instagram story. You can tag us at GoMarkets. Show notes and all previous guests are at gomarkets.com.au slash podcast. With that being said, let's get into the episode with Alex Saunders. Alex, there we go. That was fun getting set up. (laughs) There's always some sort of technical difficulties, isn't there? Exactly. Now, um, we were chatting just before this about dairy i want to get into that um it's quite timely because the first question i want to ask you was what's the best thing about being off the mainland and i was assuming you were going to say dairy but um i guess i'm just curious what is it about life in tasmania that you love the most Oh, I'm definitely not a big city guy. So, you know, I get a bit of anxiety in those big cities and it takes an hour to go to your next meeting. Um, I I very much love the fact that everywhere is five minutes away. I grew up here and a lot of my friends and family moved away to uni and then moved back and a lot of us are married and starting to have kids now. So, yeah, I definitely think that the mainland has a lot to offer um, that Tassie can't, but at the same time, in terms of quality of life, of the food, the friends, um, the cost of housing and all that stuff, I just love it down here. Yeah. I mean, my um, my partner's family, she, well, they live on the mainland, obviously in Victoria, but um, they were they immigrated out from the UK and uh, they all moved to Tassie. They're all based around Launceston. So, we probably get down, God, at least once every 18 months, a minimum, but... Um, 
it's just such a beautiful place. I think it's probably the most underrated state in Australia. You know, like, and I know there's a lot of there's a way more tourists that come down nowadays, but I still think from from people who live in in Victoria, New South Wales, they just forget about Tasmania. It's such a beautiful place. Yeah, and obviously, um, when I used to work in pharmacy, we'd meet so many baby boomers that had retired down to Tassie and just couldn't believe yeah. they discovered it twenty or thirty years earlier. Yeah, well, that's why Tasmania at the moment's been going through a property boom, right? Just like a retiree boom in a way. Yeah, I mean, coming off a real low base, the average house price in Hobart was, you know, 300000 a few years back and maybe 250000 in Launceston. And you can live in these fantastic places five minutes from the city, um, right near the gorge and out to the beach. And, you know, that is just a crazy price point when you consider what Melbourne, Sydney has become. I know. It is. It is in- just insane. Uh, I do love looking at the core logic data every month and just seeing Tasmania as the outlier as to what, in comparison to what else is going on across Australia. Um, uh, thinking about Tassie and your childhood, what sort of the earliest memory you have of being a kid? I was very lucky. So I got to grow up what you'd consider in the bush, even though it's 15 minutes from town. So we had a lot of lands, you know, building tree houses, marking around on bike trails, playing football and cricket. Um, so, yeah, I was really active and really sporty. And I actually think that um, you've got to have that balance of um, studying and going to uni, but that sport is an outlet. And, um, yeah, I'm very grateful for the upbringing that I had. Yeah, it's uh, that was one thing you mentioned in the uh, coin jar interview. The the coin jar stories about the importance of taking time to go walk, meditate. I know you you still play cricket, right? Even though you're running this business, you still find time to play cricket each each season. Yeah, I, I honestly have never spoken about this much at all in public, but I um I used to play pretty high level cricket. And I got to play in a premiership with our. Uh, Captain Tim Payne and James Faulkner, and we had a very good side when I was at uni in Hobart. Wow. Uh, and I still play up here in Launceston now. Yeah. Okay, very nice. Now, um, uh, thinking again about your childhood, is something that we've been intrigued about from each of our guests, and it's just getting an understanding of, I guess, principles or lessons learnt from either of your parents. So I'm curious as to, as you were growing up, are there lessons or principles that you saw from them, whether it was directly or indirectly at all? Oh, I guess um, yeah, this is a tough one. So my mum and dad uh, were both dentists and they worked together and that was pretty stressful. They ended up getting divorced. So maybe that's a lesson that you've got to have a work-life balance. Really? Um, that's a good one. Dad, dad was very sporty as well. So I got to follow in his footsteps, what the things that he was passionate about. Um I guess I went to a really small private school for primary school and that probably set me behind in a social setting you look back on now when you go out to the big high school and whatnot. So I was young yeah. for my grade and had been to that school, so I was probably behind on the social side of things. Um, but, yeah, you learn a lot once you go to uni and get out in the real world, I guess. Where do you think then – so they were both dentists. You obviously went into pharmacies. You were – you were saying earlier when we were chatting about what you were doing prior to Nuggets News. and uh, So you studied pharmacy at the University of Tasmania and worked as a pharmacist pharmacist for a while. You said your parents were dentists. Why not get into dentistry? Uh, they both came from um, 
you know, not poor backgrounds, but sort of lower middle class. Um, so we, they always made sure we had a good appreciation for money and whatnot as well, I should say, because when you say your parents are dentists, it makes it sound like you've had everything handed to <laughs> But um, I'd never liked the idea of putting my hands in other people's mouths, I think, growing up. And dad used to gross us out a bit when we were at his work about all that sort of stuff. So I was always really interested in believe it or not, living on the farm, we used to make a lot of bombs and mucking around with that sort of stuff uh, growing up as you do when you're a naughty teenager. So I was really interested in chemistry and then in high school studied, you know, chemistry um, and how the body works with the sport. So that always really interested me and I was hopeless at English and history and all those sort of (laughs) subjects, yeah. That's interesting. Uh, were you a bit of a pyromaniac as a kid? I know that like me and my brother on, on the street back in the day, we just light anything on fire, anything we could find. Exactly. That's probably the right word, but I didn't want to say it online these days because <laughs> it's probably going to trigger some algorithm. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. Um, now, based on what I could understand, you got into this area probably around the same time not you. I, you definitely got into this before me, but the similar things happened to you at a similar time. So, and I think that's probably a theme that has happened to a lot of uh, a sort of millennial slash Gen Xs, if that makes sense. Like, you know, we we all experience the GFC. For a lot of people, they had stocks, their first ever stocks during that period of time, and I know that you experienced quite an intense loss during that period, and it sort of put you on to or at least put you down the rabbit hole of Zero Hedge, which I had at exactly the same time. I think I found around 2008, 2009. Um, I guess I was curious as to what was sort of the first the first documentary or in-depth, in-depth piece that you consumed around crypto that really, really made you think, geez, this is, this is something. Yeah, so my parents gave me those shares and they lost half their value and um, I remember asking them, do you still have to pay your financial advisor because they had a lot of wealth tied up and they were paying this financial advisor and they basically said, yeah, no one can see this coming. So that's what led me to start watching all those documentaries and we're so lucky that we grew up in that YouTube era where yeah. that was what you did when you had a free period at uni. You went home and watched YouTube videos and, and whatnot. So I think I can't remember one documentary but I watched them all uh, about the GFC and how banks and money worked. And in terms of Bitcoin, once I read that Zero Hedge article in 2012, you go to YouTube and there just wasn't much out there. I think there might have been a few Andreas Antonopoulos videos. Maybe Roger Ver was talking about this, uh, one or two other people, but there was just not much information out there. And I actually probably watched the same videos over just to learn more. And, um, you know, what is a blockchain? How do I store these? How do I buy these? I'm not sure if you remember, but the only way to buy them back then was in 2013. You had to print out a form and you had six hours to get to a bank and make the deposit. Otherwise, the coin jar transaction um, wouldn't be valid. Yeah, that was the very first iteration of this sort of stuff. Yeah, that was the very, very early days, man. And then, yeah. then you used to have options like at, um, bitcoin.com.au, which still exists today. It's sort of, you know, not what people expect with the wallet or app. It's more of a sort of, um, it, it comes across as more of like a Western Union service that like you've got to get X amount of dollars to them by X date and time. It's just, yeah, it's, it's a completely different frontier back then. 
Um, it's so funny to meet a lot of these website owners now because obviously we've become very connected and made a lot of friends in the Australian space and every day you still hear about another website or exchange that's been around since 2013 that you've never heard of and Australia's got (laughs) 250 registered exchanges which is insane. That's an interesting thing. I wonder over time, like over time, there's it's quite obvious that licensing will come into play and then that number will whittle down. But it's it's intriguing. Like it, it is still a small space, yet there's so, so many players that exist. Um, I just want to jump back to the, the zero hedge uh, element. It's funny that you mention about your parents and noticing that they were with, a, I guess, a financial advisor or planner that was charging them some ludicrous amount. I had the exact same thing. And I, I remember being so proud because I convinced my parents, like, you don't need this. You just need like a Vanguard index fund. And convincing them to move that, I know that the wealth advisor absolutely hated me because I remember having this meeting in the boardroom at my parents' work and like just drilling them about all these different fees. But that was the industry back then. And it's amazing to see how much has changed in the last 10 years. We've all become better procurers of financial services, I think, as part of the GFC. Yeah, and obviously blockchain is all about decentralizing things and cutting out the middleman, but financial services and banking is just one of those industries that's grown to be you know, almost a tumor on the economy and they're just leeching fees and all the data tells us that those sort of funds don't outperform and yet people continue to pay for these lackluster returns. Uh, and then obviously banking is another kettle of fish charging people uh, to move money in the, in the digital age when everything is you know instant. We can have a high definition video chat. That was the light bulb moment. As soon as I read about Bitcoin, you know, my money needs to be become digital and instant. This is going to take off. What What did that period teach you? Like those first early days, what sort of stands back as the biggest insight during that time? Is it what you just mentioned before, or or something that else? Like you know, this was you could just tell that this was going to be a momentous. Well, I, thing. I guess. I, yeah, so I was a bit of a gold and silver bug because at the time that was probably the, <laughs> the only other outlet for sound money and for getting away from this debt-based system that's kind of got this runaway effect now where we're getting to the point where people can't even pay the interest on the debt and I think we are going to go into deeply negative interest rates at some places and that's going to wake a lot of people up to the fact that something's wrong. But um I'd travelled a fair bit and if you have to send $200 overseas to buy a new cricket bat was another example I remember. And then the bank charged you $50 in international fee, 10% on the currency rate. So you paid something like $70 out of 200 to buy something in another country. Mm. And that to me was just like, you know, this is one cent if the guy had have accepted Bitcoin. This is going to take off when something is that much better. And that's only, you know, one example of what Bitcoin can do and... We'll get into all the different things that Bitcoin is to different people, but that's one of the big misconceptions that people just see Bitcoin as this speculative thing and people very rarely grasp um, everything that it has to offer and it's different to different people. Yeah, I think that people often confuse it as just a pure new asset class, whereas whereas my belief is that cryptocurrencies that you'd expect, decentralized cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, um, Zcash, etc., I think really it's just a a change in infrastructure as opposed to specific assets. Um, and we'll get into that in a, in a moment. But I, I know that it's funny that you had that gold bug stage. I think for everyone, I feel like if weed is the gateway drug to uh, to something else more more sinister or more intriguing, I guess 
gold and silver is definitely the gateway drug to to Bitcoin, without a doubt. I know I, I vividly remember at that time it was all about Peter Schiff. I don't know if you remember Peter Schiff, and you know he's sort of very pro gold, and now he debates a lot of people about Bitcoin versus gold and so forth. But that was yeah when I I found him, and then it wasn't maybe a year after that I found Bitcoin after that, and it was the same thing. It was that clear understanding that this is a monumental change in the way that we're going to do things. Um, so yeah, and that was probably probably another big lesson I learned was a lot of those guys out there were telling you that silver was going to the moon. It's going to happen next year. Yeah. But you can't go for more than two years. And after sort of five or six years after the GFC, there we were, and it hadn't happened. And I found an experienced trader and gentleman who was talking about the S and P is going to go to three thousand, and this was back then. And that that was the first time I'd found someone out there that was really bullish on everything that was happening, all the money printing. And that very much taught me to read both sides of any argument and just you can't live in this, uh, you know, the fear porn sort of around yeah. you and just keep hoping for everything to collapse because, A, governments aren't going to let that happen. Central banks are going to do stupid things before they would ever let, um, you know, stocks and house prices crash. And I think there's a big way to take advantage of that and I think it's going to be one of the big drivers of Bitcoin's price going forward as well. And I think that that mindset that you just communicated then is such a valuable mindset. And I think with Nuggets News and, and, and you and your own brand and the way that you expanded, I think that your approach to educating the every man about this, but also in a level-headed way is what people have loved and what I've loved looking from afar. Um, I think it is so easy to get stuck into what you just said before, that sort of um, downturn porn, you know, like the, you had all sorts of people that would go on CNN and uh, Fox News Business and all these sort of programs and talk about how tomorrow the economy is going to crash and gold's going to 10,000 and all these sort of ludicrous claims, but they never, ever happen. I remember vividly for myself having a conversation with my uncle at about 21, 22, where I'd been on this sort of track for about two years saying, this system's going to collapse, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, look, you've become a very negative person. And uh, it's it's interesting to see how when you get stuck into that sort of that niche of uh, struggle porn, I guess, that that it can become quite limiting in, in the way that you view things. And I think the takeaway from that is that investing is about timing. So even if something does happen and gold goes up, like Peter Schiff has been dead wrong for 10 years. If you had done yeah. the opposite of what he said and shorted gold and gone long Bitcoin, that's been the greatest trade of our generation. So you couldn't have been more wrong, but it's all about timing and investing. Yeah. What what have you learned from teaching people? You've been doing this for a while now, uh, teaching people about cryptocurrency markets, trading. I'm just curious as to what you've learned as an individual from teaching them. I've been studying, um, I think it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect where people learn about something and they think that they're an expert in it. And then you have this steep decline where the more people learn about it, the more they realize they don't know about a topic. And then you come out the other end of that curve where you have the true professionals and masters in their craft. And they're often the ones that you're not going to find on Twitter or social media or making YouTube videos. So there's a huge you know, misconception out there about who knows what they're talking about and, and who doesn't. So what we've done with Nuggets News by trying to have unbiased information and present both sides of the argument and obviously when we make a video about 
market downturns or Bitcoin going to higher prices, they get more views. But it's all that in between that we do where we've built up a really loyal following and attracted some really good people towards us. And obviously, we have our premium service with over a 1,000 traders and investors. And there's so many smart people in there that give you different perspectives. So even if I'm getting a little bit attached to a, a trade or an idea, we have smart people saying, you know, you're too married to this. We think this is going to happen. And that's mm-hmm. so hard. I don't know of many, and I don't want to, you know, shill my own trading group, but it's very hard to get that trusted environment, experienced. People aren't afraid to speak up. They know they're going to be respected. Um, whether we're talking about the trading world or the crypto world, that's probably the most valuable thing we've built up. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, do you think that that has come around? through osmosis or do you think that you crucially felt look i've seen these people like peter schiff who become these gods and they're unquestioned and and as you said if for 10 years you'd followed a trade against them you would have been quite successful do you think that that has always sort of been there in the back of your mind that you don't want to become like one of these sort of demagogues that you get in a in a specific niche yeah as i as i said there was a um it was a paid subscription service that one of my old bosses used to, um, you know, share some ideas with me about the S and P going to three thousand when it was back at you know fifteen hundred or whatnot, and just having that idea that hey, you can you can make money by being positive. It's not about being negative and hoping for everything to crash and you're going to make a heap of money buying some you know trading the VIX and all that sort of thing. So. That definitely opened my mind to, hey, you don't know everything. There's people out there on both sides of the market. Um, when everyone's talking about something, obviously, you know, being on the other side of the boat is often the best place to be and there's a difference between being a contrarian and just catching a falling knife. So there's so many lessons that I learned and mistakes I made. And in crypto, that process is probably accelerated. So getting in Bitcoin in 2012 and then Ethereum in 2015 or 16, you know, you've been through half a dozen of these 70 or 80% corrections, they're emotional roller coasters. And some stock traders go 20 years without going through that and it's a real life learning experience for them. So I certainly lost a heap of money trading those swings the wrong way early on. And then we had the big run in 2017 and everyone's kind of saying, oh, you know, you're such a great trader. How do you know all this? And it's like, well, guys, <laughs> I made the same mistakes that you're making right now, but I've been through these cycles before. Yeah, that is so true. You you've been it's like you've gone into the matrix, you know, like you plug you know how Neo he goes in and he's he's able to do like 20 years worth of uh of ninjutsu or, yeah. or karate or whatever he does. You've been out through those early periods, those early swings, you've been able to accelerate your learning through that period. Hands That's down. interesting. Matrix yeah. is my favorite movie of all time for a, a number of reasons and I guess that was another part of my journey once I was down the rabbit hole into um, how the world of pharmacy is quite corrupt when I was studying pharmacy, the world of banking is quite corrupt and the government and politics. But then finding meditation and all that sort of thing really helped me as well. And I think the matrix, the idea that people just go through their lives and work nine to five, they're not happy, they're searching for something more uh, and there is far more out there if you really open your mind. So that's why the matrix is my favorite movie. Yeah, what was that, that, that saying that was writing in the back of my head? What was it like handing in your resignation? Uh, so it's actually a two-part story. So I was at the same place for five years and it was a pretty good, pretty busy pharmacy and I was you know, quite high up, but I just wasn't happy. And um, I really was loving crypto and all this investing stuff and spending probably just as many hours a day doing that as working. Um, <laughs> and my old boss was not a fan of Bitcoin Ethereum and I'd hassle him to buy it when it was like 
six dollars come on this is your chance to buy the dip and whatnot and you just wouldn't have a bar of it and sort of laugh at me and we sort of grew apart we butted heads on a few issues and whatnot and that's when I did hand in my resignation and move on but that happened to be the time when everything started to take off in 2016 or or 17 and I moved to a new job and that was more part-time so I could really start to focus more on crypto Uh, and that's when I started making a few videos and I got some some really good feedback and the new business had actually offered me a position hey do you want to be more of a manager and that would obviously take up a lot of my time and on the way to work that day there was another YouTuber um Omar Bam, who's one of my heroes, who gave me a big shout out for one of my first videos. And I was like, geez, this is a oh, sign wow. that you need to concentrate more on your passion and not just go back down that road of working full time and not being happy. So, yeah, I certainly quit um, at uh, and not the perfect time. So Bitcoin went down for the next 15 months after that. God. And uh, we somehow managed to survive and we're very lucky that we had a loyal following during that bear market because a lot of other people definitely lost their followings and um, subscribers and whatnot. I can imagine um, it would have been, we've just gone through this period in our own business with my partner and I, uh, sort of gradually moving to working part-time. And as things go on, you sort of whittle down that time uh, working with your employer. And I can imagine as you went full-time and what you were doing to have that that fifteen month, basically, I'm I'm guessing that was the that was the true uh, bear market that we had for about fifteen months, sort of that 2014, 15 period. Um, so this, no, this was only two thousand seventeen, the most recent ah. market cycle when I when I went full time. And okay, yeah, but by then you were pretty well known. Uh, no, not really. So probably only in the mid two thousand seventeen when I started doing a lot of stuff publicly. So, right. yeah, friends and family and our private Facebook group had probably grown to a few dozen from back in 2013. But that in 2017, I was added to a Facebook group that only had a few hundred people and within a few months, that had got to 50,000 people when I was sharing ideas and videos and whatnot. And as we got into December 2017, that's when well, I said, I've just got to quit. There's so much going on here. This is awesome. And yeah. that, my 30th birthday is actually the day Bitcoin peaked. And the day that futures were launched, so I remember that all very clearly because Bitcoin has gone down, you know, ever since then. And we really had to pivot to put a big focus on education and teaching people about the fundamentals, some, some trading things, how to learn about what is a good cryptocurrency versus a bad one, and avoid a scam. And because we had that big emphasis on education, we probably had about eighty percent of our people stick with us through the whole of crypto winter, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, it is very unique for for someone who's been through that period of time. I think uh, it's very unique for your business to have that, and it's um, I think is a testament to to you and your work. I think if I speak to any friend that comes to me and has just gotten into crypto, they all talk about Nuggets News. So I think it's it it really is sort of a signal to you uh, that you're doing good things. Um, I want to just quickly jump into crypto itself. We've spoken briefly with guests about this in the past on the show, very briefly. We've touched on sort of the differences between centralized systems and the speed that that can offer versus decentralized systems and how that offers both monetary benefits and, of course, censorship resistance. I think right now we're at the stage where Bitcoin is pretty much mainstream. Like if I speak to people about it now, most would know about it. 
I think we're looking at 10 to 20 billion in daily volume, although there's always question marks around actual volume in the industry. We've got large institutions that have entered the market, some now offering options, which, you know, I think 18 months ago wasn't really a thing. And then we've passed sort of those multiple phases of speculation. I think the biggest trend now being stable coins and these security token offerings. I'm just curious as to how you see the current state of crypto, both globally and locally here in Australia. Yeah, so we're probably right on that precipice where most people have heard about Bitcoin, but I really think that less than 1% of people understand what Bitcoin is and what it can do for different people around the world. And that's probably the next wave is people realizing that, A, this wasn't a bubble that's that's popped and just a fad like tulips or whatnot. When Bitcoin starts to go up in price again and, um, you know, fidelity backed, every, you know, it's on Wall Street. It's officially an investment product yeah. that makes it legitimate. We start to see people... You know, in Venezuela, I think it's 50% of transactions now happen in Bitcoin because their currency is so bad. And there'll be half a dozen um, countries in the same situation in 12 months' time. So all those things are going to make Bitcoin really legitimate. Now, that's probably going to lead to more speculation because the next wave of people will come in and push the price too high and whatnot. But I guess in terms of phases, so early on, we had just Bitcoin. Then we had other coins that claimed to be slightly different. Then we had Ethereum was the real game changer once we could um, program money and actually transfer uh, data and value, not just have a, a you know a ledger of accounts and whatnot as Bitcoin is. Mm. Now we've got a whole range of blockchain-based projects trying to disrupt different industries. And again, whether or not that's going to happen on public chains or private chains and whatnot, that still all has to play out. But then we have security tokens as the next fad. We had the ICO wave. I think that the ICO boom was a one-off. People are going to be far more picky about what they invest in and the STO yeah. boom is going to happen in a mature fashion behind closed doors in a lot of respects. Yeah. And what would you like to see in the next two years? Like what are the key things that you'd like to see happen? In terms of uh, Bitcoin or just the entire ecosystem? I'd say... I'd say the entire ecosystem. I mean, I've got some ideas in my mind, but I'm just I'm curious as to what you'd like to see happen realistically over the next two years. Like, What would be sort of three items of progression that you'd like to see? I guess the first one would be a, a killer dap, as everyone says, something built on a decentralized network, whether something really bad happens to Facebook or YouTube that gets, gets really bad with its censoring and we have a sort of tipping point where 10 or 20% of people start to use a decentralized system uh, and a lot of active users. Now, I did a talk. Uh, recently um, with a guy that's really high up in marketing and loyalty programs and he thinks that that is going to be the killer use case in the next 12 to 24 months. That's why Facebook are getting into that because if they can keep you on their platform to do your shopping and to pay things and to earn Facebook coin, uh, they've already got, you know, the billion active users. So it's all about getting those users 
to actually have an app which they're not just using for the sake of it because it's blockchain, using an app that has some point of difference for being on a blockchain. And hopefully that's one of the decentralized ones that wins rather than Facebook coin or, or JP Morgan coin. <laughs> but uh, there's a number of projects that I'm already hearing about. And again, it's in Africa and these developing nations which need this technology more. Uh, that it is already changing people's lives. But uh, if we have any sort of financial crisis or the next round of QE or negative interest rates, once we have another downturn and central banks have to play some card that they've been promising the world they weren't going to play, that is what's going to get a lot of people to question um, you know, the current monetary system. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. Having some sort of crucial application and I think you're right. I think it's going to be some sort of gift-based system, some sort of yeah, like some sort of reward system enveloped within some some other app. I don't know what it is. I mean, you see another good example on top of Facebook is uh, you know Alipay and how integrated that is in people's lives in China. But again, it's a centralized system managed by one company essentially. Um, but I think that that is the crucial applica- the the thing that's most likely going to come first. I think as well, I'd love to see, I think for Australia locally, we need to see licensing. I think that will clean out a lot of the industry here in Australia. I know that it makes it frustrating for the, I guess, crypto purists who don't want government approval, but it's also the thing that could push, you know, people like my parents into using a coin jar or B2C markets or one of these providers? Yeah, Who knows? I mean, I mean, we are working um, as a member of Blockchain Australia and we have merged with ADCAS, so we're going to be one industry body very soon. And we do have approved approved exchanges and we're trying to work on how we can register other utility token projects because the rules around securities are pretty clear. But um, yeah. I think people can safely use exchanges in Australia, but it's that that custody and insurance, which is going to be the big one for the baby boomers in the next wave, I think. I think so. I think that assurance that, that things are okay is, is absolutely crucial. And look, unfortunately, we had um, the Binance hack uh, the other day, albeit a very small one, it's still as the biggest player probably in this, the industry. It makes people question things. I think by having forms of licensing is is very, very helpful. Um, I'm curious then as to what do you think the industry, you know, we're talking about things that you, we'd like to see, we work in the industry. What do you think people in the industry focus on way too much? Um, I guess the blockchain is a buzzword and thinking it's going to solve all their problems is probably the big thing that's hopefully moved past now in a lot of ways. But Australia's got a huge opportunity with agriculture and logistics and traceability is one of the best use cases, I think, for blockchain. Um, our, our voting and decision-making process has been pretty pretty ordinary lately. And again, that's another <laughs> project and sort of style of project I, I support. In Australia and the US, Bitcoin is that money is harder to convince people because anyone can tap their card and pay wave and we've got a pretty good system. But going forward, in one by one, it's going to be more countries that have um, deflating currencies from monetary stimulus and whatnot. And if maybe that does happen in Australia just to the tune of 
uh, 10%, 20% fall in the Aussie dollar when we've got to do some economic stimulus and whatnot. As soon as people see Bitcoin as this store of value or they get told there's going to be negative interest rates, uh, you can no longer pay with cash. I think it is um, over $10,000. So one by one, our sort of freedom's being eroded. And I just think that it's not politically acceptable for the first time in history for governments just to make these big decisions. Like we see the yellow vests in France go to the streets and say, no, we're not going to accept those higher taxes or whatnot. And I think governments just have no idea the sort of disdain that's out there towards them, but more so corporations and banks that have really taken advantage of people. And we see that in wealth inequality growing. So we're just sort of on this slow path where the average guy is just really unhappy with everything that's happening around them. And one by one, they kind of figure out that in a lot of ways, it is the monetary policy that has benefited the rich and I think Bitcoin is a movement and decentralization, yeah, it's definitely a, a movement and an ethos. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think we've spoken in the past on episodes about, you know, what is this and, and things like Trump, yellow vest movements, are they forcing themselves upon the world or are they just a symptom? And I would just say it's a symptom. I think people are, are very frustrated. And I think the root cause of that was really the GFC really what happened with the GFC and and how nothing was really sorted out during that period of time. And we sort of collectively as a global economy just sort of kicked the can down the road, but uh, someone was paying for the kick and it was the everyman. So um, I think that's why you get movements like the yellow vest, Brexit, Trump and so forth. 100%. And we forget that like in the last six months since Bitcoin bottomed, what I think bottomed and has gone back up, we have people that are going on that same journey that you or I did 10 years ago. Oh, Nugget, I watched this documentary. I can't believe they bailed out the banks with taxpayer dollars and they still made hundreds of million dollar bonuses that year and all these sort of things. So that doesn't change. And the number of people that go down that rabbit hole is only ever increasing. We see less and less people watching mainstream media, TV of an evening, more people are interested in this sort of thing. And back in 2013, I think it was Cyprus, and then it was the Greece freezing the ATM withdrawals. Then we had China capital controls. So it doesn't have to happen in Australia or the US or necessarily you know, mainland Europe. It can be a fringe country that has another event of some type where there's a huge amount of people that go into Bitcoin. Maybe it's a premium again in, in Korea, whatever it is. But it's so many things that can set Bitcoin alight as well as my longer-term vision of it absorbing anything that's competing as a store of value. A hundred percent. I think the Cyprus thing was a big deal for me because my family's Greek Cypriot and um, yeah, that was devastating to that economy for, for a great period of time and now unfortunately they're just overrun by um the russians the russians and all their money trying to get out of uh eastern europe so to speak so the economy has just never really been the same over there um i, I want to just touch on what we're talking about crypto uh your approach i know in the interview with with coin jar you touched on it briefly um it seems like you have a very fundamental and almost zen-like approach, like you, you're very process-driven. Um, I know that you often look at, and this is during that period where we're looking at uh, predominantly altcoins, but uh, the idea, the team, what their actual product is, the token, what's the market cap, real-world application, all that sort of stuff. I guess I'm curious as to how has your approach changed in the last year when you're looking at projects and 
Uh, are you really now condensing your investing to a select few currencies? So my approach has always been very much that Bitcoin is king and has a 10-year head start and Ethereum is by far the next best, again, has a five-year head start on a lot of these other projects. So that has always been my advice to 70% of your portfolio is my personal rule. Now, with that other chunk, you can use a bit for trading and a bit for speculating and you have to acknowledge that altcoins are speculating. Now, when we when we talk about fundamentals, I had a great chat with Roger Montgomery, who I'm not sure if you're aware. Is a, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I know Roger. We've I've had him on my um my own podcast, uh, Uncommon. He's he's a great guy, and it's very frustrating for them as value investors to watch the stock market take off and to let QE and central banks drive the markets. And it's a bit of a similar approach in crypto. If you have to find a, a good project with a really good team with good token economics. Even though it's almost impossible to value them, if you can look at the industry that they're disrupting and say, look, that's a $100 billion industry, even if they only capture 5% of that, that project could be worth $5 billion in future. So there's lots of if, buts, and maybes, but at the moment, that is how the market is valuing different projects, the ones that are most likely to catch on and disrupt and their token will have value in the future. So that's that's highly speculative. That's why I'd only ever use 1% of my investing portfolio in crypto to put into these coins. But having said that, when we were right, these projects were going up 10, 20, 100-fold. I think 140-fold was our best return in, in three months. So, you know, $1,000 splashed in ICO gave you 140,000 returns. So these were crazy wow. stuff by getting this right. And as long as you're taking some profits and, you know, you do have to have a pretty thick skin and ride this volatility out, there are definitely ways to, to pick which projects are better than others. And now we're at that stage and we've been pretty lucky where we have avoided most of the bad ones and the scams and we've picked some really great projects including Maker and Binance, which are probably the two best performers even in the bear market. We're kind of at that stage now where we're starting to see the good projects and their tokens actually be used and have real value in the real world, whereas a lot of the last run was just all future speculation. So that's what's probably exciting to me. And then once you have that fundamental approach, then we look at other things like the uh, metrics on social media to see what's the sentiment like towards this one. Uh, and then obviously the final layer is technical analysis, You know, just looking how the chart has performed recently, whether or not it's a good entry point. Yeah, it sort of seems like this influence of Roger. I know I'm a big, I'm big on value, the value investing approach as well. It sort of seems like, you know, diversification is not key. It's it's actually focusing on the best possible projects in the best possible use case. Um, and it's it's funny you mentioned about Bitcoin and Ethereum. I think everyone agrees on that point. They are the king and queen right now of cryptocurrencies and. As it's a network, they dominate. And then it's focusing on specific uh, niche use cases like voting with Horizon State or energy with Power Ledger, as an example. So I think, I think I'd agree on that approach. I think it's the best way to go about it. Um, I'm realizing we've just hit over 40 minutes, which I know is what we normally sit on for these episodes. So I want to jump into some short, fast questions just to ask you some general questions about your day. So uh, first one, what does your morning routine look like? Get up and check the charts to see if Bitcoin's gone up or down $1,000. Something really important has happened. Um, yep. And then read the news. So I really do consume a lot of content and podcasts on time and a half speed, uh, but reading a lot of news to make sure that I've uh, got a good understanding of everything happening around me. 
And your day, what does your day typically look like? The morning versus afternoon, where's the bulk of your time spent? So making an episode or planning future episodes and planning content for our, our premium group, uh, meetings, I try to do at least one interview or podcast a day, either for our channel or like this, for example. Mm-hmm. At the moment, it's a full house. I'm home with the newborn baby and my wife's having a year off and our dog. So uh, try and get a bit of work done and have a bit of a break and spend some time with them in between all that. And how do you decompress at night? What what helps you relax? So yeah, I should mention that every day I go for a walk for at least an hour to clear my head and that's when the best ideas often come to me as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Of a night, definitely switch off and watch some um, YouTube or something that uh, is just very relaxing have dinner, no dis- no disruptions while we're having dinner and lunch, um, spend some time with the little one and, and get a good night's sleep. Are you a Game of Thrones fan? Oh, I sure am, yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about uh, the, the current season so far? Happy or disappointed? Oh, I think it's just had the biggest build-up for, what, 10 years or so and it's been pretty disappointing lately. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I feel like they've uh, they butchered the last season as it's progressively gone down. But anyway, I'm not going to get <laughs> yeah. stuck into that. Um, if you had to gift a book to the audience for Christmas, what would it be and why? One book. Ooh. One of my favorites was Marin Katusa, The Cold of War, and that opened okay. my eyes up to how the petrodollar works, how Russia have got a lot of oil and gas reserves and could be a real power play in the future. And after I'd read that, you start to see all the, the mainstream news always bashing Russia. And again, it opens your mind up to, hey, there's two sides to every story here. There's, there's more um, at play at what we may have been told on the surface. I like that. Sounds like a good book. Last question for you. What's been the best purchase uh, under $200? Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> when I, when I, had, always- I had a year off uni and went back and realized I couldn't see anymore. So maybe my first set of glasses, which I still own. <laughs> that you still own? How long ago was that? Yeah, probably 10 years ago now. Yeah. Wow. That's a very, very good investment. Two hundred bucks. <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah. A lot of people say AirPods, but um, I would say yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely those glasses. Uh, look, Alex, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I just want to say thank you for joining us. Um, I think there's a lot there that people can learn about your story and this world of cryptocurrency. Uh, where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, so nuggetsnews.com.au has plenty of information about everything we do. Um, Nuggets News YouTube and Alex Saunders on Twitter. I'm pretty active there. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Alex. No worries. Thanks, Jordan. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Margin Call. Before you run off, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to get first access to new episodes and consider sharing this with a friend who loves the Forex CFD game. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Go Markets. That's G O M A R K E T S. Until next time, thanks for listening.